I am so like crazy excited that I have Rebecca Wanzo here with me, who is professor and chair of women's gender sexuality studies at Washington U St. Louis. Gosh, I'm so happy to be here with you, Rebecca. Well, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for asking me to do it. I appreciate it. So, you know, as we kind of, you know, we all have our stories um, and we all, a lot, you know, many of us started our careers as academics doing more sort of traditional, even mm -hmm. if it was media stuff, but um, many of us, I kind of wanted to do comics all along, but tell, tell me how you got into comics, comic studies. Well, you know, I should say, first of all, my shtick about this is at some point we will know we arrive as a field if we don't have to tell our, like, why we, why we do comic stories. So I'm just saying, but that said, um, yeah, I have a PhD in English. Um, I, unlike a lot of people, uh, did not grow up reading uh, comics is as extensively as a lot of other people. I've started to change my narrative that I didn't grow up reading a co reading comics because I think, you know, reading Bloom County all the time, um, really loving editorial cartoons. Um, I definitely read some comics, but it wasn't a primary medium for me. Um, I started reading comics when I was in grad school, and it's actually about working at Ohio State with you among um, among others um, and because of the wonderful archives there um, that my interest in comics combined with the fact that there was such a rich field in comic studies at OSU and the wonderful archives and um, people like Sam Malay, um, black editorial cartoons for the Pittsburgh Courier. I got to look at his work and, and to be the first who really, you know, dealt with him at any length. Uh, so it was really about, um, being in a space that cultivated comic studies as a field. So more broadly speaking, I've um, popular culture and cultural studies was one of my primary fields in grad school. Um, so, and I was interested in, in genre fiction specifically. So this then sort of moved into uh, my interest in the, the medium. Um, that was at Duke, right? Am I correct? Yeah, yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, exciting, exciting work that you were doing there. And I imagine a lot of that led to your first book, The Suffering Will Not Be Televised. And can you tell us a little bit about sentimental political storytelling, race and visual legibility? Yeah, and it wasn't actually, visual legibility was not actually the point of the first book. It was very much about narrative. Um, which I think is important in understanding how my second book is kind of a, a uh, addendum or uh, an addition, extension of the work I did in the first book. So my dissertation was very traditional in a lot of ways as a book, as a project that was about literary studies. I covered novels in, in every chapter. Um, but I was interested in how African-American women were subjects and not just objects of sentimental discourse, um, not just in the 19th century, but through the 20th century. And I took sentimental literary discourse into the 20th century and thinking about certain kinds of conventions you had to be attentive to, to make your suffering legible to the state or other kinds of institutions like uh, the medical establishment um, or the court system. So part of what um, I looked at are things like hierarchies of suffering or, um, 
the idea that you have to sort of make your suffering seem like someone else's specifically often say white people suffering, um, white middle class people suffering. So things like that. Um, so these kind of conventional narratives, um, practices in relationship to trying to make people pay attention to the fact that you're in pain and thus get redress, I think extended into my second project in being interested in um, one, discourse of the citizenship still, because very much, my first book was still very much about discourse of citizenship. And how do we see this in visual culture? My first book was primarily about African-American women. My second book is more about African-American men. Um, so that's how these works are in conversation with each other. Uh, you've done so much, uh, Rebecca. Sorry if I leapfrogged around some of your work. Um, but yeah, it is really interesting. You know, I've always been like kind of amazed at the Oprah effect and how certain novels, certain kind of Oprah chosen novels are um, put out there because of this kind of almost misery narrative that they project or that she wants to frame or that she wants to champion. It's a, actually, I'd say it's very much not a misery narrative. I mean, they're okay. suffering. I mean, because, and I would say this specifically because, you know, often someone who teaches African-American literature, there's a lot of depressing things that happen in African-American literature. Um, and so and students are like, why is everything so depressing? Well, you know, black life ain't no crystal stare. But that said, um, Oprah is very much about over, narratives of overcoming, right? And so what she did is she actually brought people's, um, like a lot of midlist midlist authors, not someone like Morrison. Morrison, when you look at her trajectory, like when her first couple books were out versus like what happened with Beloved, I mean, it was sort of a, that was a long um, game in terms of how she eventually was sort of elevated into the canon. It didn't take that long, but she was very much a part of a black literary establishment, but not part of like a broader high literary establishment when she was first released in I think the 1970s, right? Um, and I think that part of what Oprah does, it's, it's not about even the content as much as about her reading practice. And that's also, I think, part of what connects both books too. I'm trying to get people to think about how they're reading things and apply different tools to understanding the practices um, of writers and artists and helping us think about representation and identity. And so she had a specific reading practice that was sort of telling us how to read things um, and was for yeah. uplift, largely, yeah. Uplift, yeah, no, that makes a lot, a lot of sense. Um, tell us about your new amazing work and gosh, yeah, the, you know, kind of work within the caricature to kind of blow it up and then at the same time the kind of clearing these spaces of belonging um but yeah maybe you can share some something about that so i mean part of what was really interesting to me is that in comic studies i think that sequence has been so foundational to our framing of what comics do and that's important but then it's also interesting because it takes out um, editorial cartoons and, and things that it's in conversation with and that people who move back and forth between editorial cartoons and comic art. Um, and what they have in common often are, you know, the act of caricature. And I'm 
and the process of it and trying to think through what characters you can do. And, and I was really interested in how uh, I really rejected a lot of McLeod's claims about identification and understanding comics, which taught, it's taught so much about what the simplified form does. And the simplified form makes it sort of more universal, more people can sort of attach to it. Um, in the sense that I think that, you know, there's a way in which a lot of these caricatures can end up reading as white and universal. And that also identification happens a lot, as you know, like from your work, when you see representations that look more like you, right? And so what's, the, what are, what's that doing? And then I was also interested in the idea of caricature as sometimes also being ideal types, Superman, Little Orphan Annie, and how it's harder for black folks to, and other people of color, um, and sometimes women, to occupy these kind of ideal types. So what, and so how have cartoonists, um, specifically black cartoonists, thought about making use of caricature to comment on these um, representations of black people, stereotypes broadly speaking, and how we might see that as in conversation with the kinds of idealizations they're excluded from, right? How is it often a response to broader discourses of, of, of citizenship? Yeah, really remarkable um, work, Rebecca. So exciting. Um, there's this other aspect that's so important and maybe it even relates back to how you're reading Oprah, but this idea of belonging, empowerment, uh, political belonging, art, can you share a little bit about that? Well, I mean, I think I'm interested in political belonging in a few different ways. I mean, one, I think that African-American cartoonists are often writing Black people into spaces that they're not understood as being able to occupy or draw them into spaces they're not able to occupy. And part of that is, is also just being able to be on like the funnies pages, right? Like that you could actually have access. So like you have an example of Luther here, um, sort of one, one of the first um, comic strips to be illustrated, uh, to be included in sort of mainstream papers um, as opposed to the black press. Um, but there's also an issue with history, right? And how we have all these rich examples of black cartoonists speaking to um, U.S. history and Black history and those exclusions. And so you have the example of Truth, which was the first article I wrote that um, ended up in this book, you know, <laughs> a 10-year arc there, I think, um, about how it's very much about putting Black people into a superhero history, like rewriting how we understand um, what superhero iconography means, which I think more recently... Um, with remediation was done incredibly well with Watchmen, right? Like, I feel like once you watch Watchmen, it'd be hard to um, look at Hooded Justice and read Watchmen in the same way, right? It, it really reimagines that text in ways that, that helped you see it differently. And I think um, that's what a lot of African-American cartoonists do. Um, so there's, there's this piece of like what you can speak to historically, and also there's the issue of the medium, trying to find inclusion in the medium. And then there's the issue of just citizenship and belonging more broadly, and how one fits into the iconography um, or how one's excluded from it. 
Yeah, beautiful. Thank you. Um, you also have this sort of concept, very powerful generative concept of identity temporalities. Um, and American born Chinese as a kind of, you know, working through this. Can you share this kind of concept and how you use it and how we might use it? So, and this is uh, an Asian American studies, Asian American comics uh, version of some of the work that I do in my book. Um, in the sense that I'm interested in the use of racist caricature or racialized caricature um, by cartoonists of color and how they're commenting on the continued presence of these histories, right? So part of what I'm looking at is how comics is a medium, and this is how sequence actually works really well, I think with my concept, is how you see on the same page or how things are, are framed in a way that make you think about history, the present and the future at the same time in relationship to identity. So it's not just that we're thinking about sequence in relationship to time and what it does, but that identity itself um, can help us, um, or actually sort of the sequence in comics itself can help us think about identity differently um, and help us think about how um, theories of identity and theories of the comics medium can work in relationship to each other. So in, in American Born Chinese, which is such a brilliant um, book about time um, and identity, um, you have these three narratives that, you know, seem like there's a juxtaposition and then you realize that there's actually a timeline there, right? And then it sort of makes you rethink, you know, what it is you thought you knew about identity at the beginning of the text, right? And it also, um, and I, what I like about this sort of last frame, you know, the point where they're most themselves or like they're in the distance and then, and you see, it seems like sort of a caricature almost of, um, Chinese American identity, like it's like you go down the feature so you can at least notice from a distance, like we know that those are um, Chinese Americans, right? And so, um, and it's, it is about a simplified representation. Um, and what I think really goes on in that text is a, a play with um, caricature as, as something that you know is read in Asian American um, in the way Asian Americans move about in the world. And of course, we're seeing that so extensively now um, that, you know, with our president talking about the China flu and how people are talking about Chinese Americans, um, that these histories that you think are past are not past and they're still there. So how do people make use of them? How are people tricksters? How are people um, haunted by them? And it's like how we think about identities move through time and caricatures move through time and how it affects us. Yeah, that's so amazing and um, so important, obviously, for the work that I do with Latinx comics. Um, tell me, Rebecca, if you don't mind, sharing some of your trademark Wanzo techniques of teaching comics. Well, and unfortunately, I don't get to teach uh, comics as much as I would like. I tend to like squeeze one into a class every now and then I've been able to teach a full class anymore. Um, but part of what, um, there are a few things I really like to do. And it's, and one thing is really getting people to figure out how you slow down 
to read the image and read things in relationship to each other. Um, I, so I taught my favorite things is monsters last spring, which is such an ambitious text. Um, and I had to tell them, you cannot read the e version of this. You have to have a hard copy to look at it. Um, and part of one thing I really wanted to do is to have them think um, about what the images in the work are referencing, right? How are you reading images in relationship to the other things that we know in the world? And how are all these gaps in these images with things you see? And that's such a useful text for that because she's referring to so much high art and so many um, horror films and horror comics. And so to think about that, it's a text that really is helpful in getting students to slow down because you have these full pages where you're trying to think, okay, how does this image work in relationship to um, things we know outside of the comic, but also the character in the comic, right? Um, how is the protagonist informed by um, these other images, how are the images that are um, about broader popular cultural productions or high art cultural productions informing the representation um, that Ferris puts of the protagonist on the page or other characters. So how do you have images speak to each other? Um, and that's a really useful one for it. I, I also like sometimes if, if I have a full class is to do have students do the, you know, this is the folded comic, the one-page comic, um, just to get them in the practice, and they do it in teams, of, of trying to think about how you tell a story in comics, but also tell a story about identity. And so what's different about telling a specific story about identity in comics, and what kinds of things might you want to visually represent to do that? Um, so those are just a couple of things that I do. Yeah, really amazing. And yes, I agree. The my favorite thing, you know, is Monsters definitely has to be the book. Um, yeah, it just um, does. Yeah. Um, so taking a look around us and the kinds of things that you might have on your bedside table, um, where is the Vitality in Comics today? I mean, obviously a lot of interesting um, alternative things are going on online. Um, obviously, um, you know, there are a lot of local artists, I think, that are sort of pushing through and trying to, to, to get through and have their properties, things that um, can reach wider audiences. Um, I think it's, you know, and I obviously I'm biased here, but uh, John Jennings imprint on Abrams and the kind of stuff that he has on tap in terms of what he's looking to do, I think is, is really exciting. Um, you know, and particularly as someone who, and mostly what you have here, like superhero stuff, you know, and that's, that's less of what I read, honestly. I don't, I don't read superhero comics very much. Um, so, or I read some of them, but it's not my primary um, interest. And I'm always just sort of on the lookout for um, just things that might be um, a little weird. Um, I'm really excited that Jeremy Love, who's featured on my cover um, from Bayou, he's finally finishing Bayou. And that third volume will come out and will come out as a full piece. And I think that um, Bitterroot is also a really interesting example of a black comic that's doing great things with history and, and um, pushing us in sort of new ways. So I, I think that 
there's just so much rich material. I mean, more than you can possibly get to. Um, so. Yeah, no, you're right. Absolutely. In fact, it's interesting. I mean, yeah, I'm still kind of a superhero guy, but um, I've been finding actually the real vitality, at least in DC these days is the teen graphic novels. And mostly because they're pulling from like all of our like indie creators of color. Mm -hmm. And the reason why they're so exciting is less the sort of superhero uh, mythos that's being rebooted or rearticulated, but more just like the incredible energy and the incredible way that they're pushing the envelope, right? And it's because they're going to creators that are typically working in the other spaces. Right. And I do, I mean, I, I do think in some of the superhero comics, I mean, I, I like Miss Marvel. I've written about Miss Marvel as well. Um, also in relationship to citizenship. Um, it's a comic that really lends itself to that. Um, but yeah, there's just, there is so much out there. And I think that there's something for everyone, really. Um, you know, and I think some people, if you want to be the graphic memoir person, there's tons of graphic memoir out there for you. If you um, want interesting sort of horror science fiction comics, there's tons of stuff out there for you. If you want the, um, if you want interesting things going on in superhero comics, I, I think that that's really there too. Um, so it's just, um, it's a really great time to be in the field, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so I know your book just came out and it's uh, making a huge big splash, but I also know that you're constantly working on stuff. What is next for you, Rebecca? Uh, well, I mean, I, I'm working on just like lots of little projects, which I feel in the pandemic is, is all I really have space for in some ways, but um, there are two book projects. Um, one is a slim book um, about Black Panther um, for uh, a new book series on Black film uh, for Rutgers. So I am working on that. And then I am turning my um, attention to um, a number of essays I worked on, I published over the years, I think congeal into something as well as adding a few things about Black fan studies and really defamiliarizing the terrain of what we'd understand as, as fan studies in relationship to race and what kinds of conversations we should be having um, and, and who the interlocutor should be in fan studies in relationship to race. Can't wait for all of the above. Um, Rebecca Wanzo, thank you so much for joining me and sharing a little bit of your life and your work and of course your brilliant insights into comics and why comics matter. Thank you, Rebecca. Thank you. So good to see you as always. <laughs> <laughs>